Matthew 6, reading verses 19 to 24. Jesus says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body, so if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Let's pray that prayer we pray. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. I don't know how many of you are fans of the TV show Quarters. Is that still on the air? I assume it is. I don't know. Quarters? No? I never saw it, so I can't claim to be an expert, but I understood the premise because I've known enough people who do. I feel like I didn't have to watch it because I feel like I already kind of live it, you know? Um, And I guess we all do, in a sense. We're a well-to-do nation, and I think all of us have more junk than we need. And if we have empty space, we have a compulsive need to fill it. If we have an empty room or even an empty corner of a room, it feels like a lost opportunity, right? Something ought to go there. So we better make a thrift store run and find some sort of whatnot or doohickey to put there. Maybe an antique globe, I don't know, whatever you want. And this is also why we can't fit cars in our garages most of the time, because where else am I going to put all of those extra bikes that are broken that I'm not going to fix or those tools that I inherited that I don't know how to use or that bench for the van that I no longer need? Actually, that's gone. Thank you, Jason. He helped me with that. (laughs) But shows like Hoarders exist, I think, to make the rest of us feel better about ourselves. There's always somebody worse than you and me, right? We've convinced ourselves we're not that bad, so we're okay. My, My grandfather used to say, and my mother often repeats this, she says, you know, when in doubt, throw it out. Ironically, she would also laugh at him for the silly things that he would save. Uh, I remember he would give stuff to us because he'd feel bad to throw it out or whatever. And I remember her complaining later about how it was junky. Why didn't he just throw this out? I'll tell you why. It's because we hate doing that. We might need it. Or someone else might need it. Thrift stores exist to assuage our guilt about throwing things away. That's what they're there for. And it's why antiques are such a huge business in America, because we sell old, useless junk to each other. Because we're preying on each other's nostalgia and our hoarding tendencies. Hoarding is just one of those things that we all do, at least in some category, and we all think we have it under control, right? And it's much easier to see the problem in somebody else, right? Example. I happen to know that Georgia struggles... Uh, with the sin of hoarding fabric. (laughs) We have a whole sewing room dedicated to all of her sewing supplies and projects, and this is coincidentally why Jacob can't have a private room. Now, in 17 years, I've occasionally pointed out that her supplies are a bit much, 
I've stopped doing that in recent years because I'm learning that she might make me deal with my tools and books and baseball cards and train sets and my little league trophies and my bobbleheads and my records and my coins and probably some other things I didn't think of. So it's better to let sleeping dogs lie, am I right? But what's actually wrong with hoarding? I mean, we could say it's wrong because people look down on hoarders. We judge them, right? But that's more of a sort of fear of man argument. Uh, We could say that it's a sign of imbalance, mental health issues, right? And that could be, not always, but certainly can be. Uh, it, It could be that hoarding is inconveniencing your family or your neighbors. That could be a legitimate reason to avoid I don't like piles of junk in my own garage. I can't imagine if I didn't actually have a garage and my neighbors could actually see it all. It would be even more embarrassing. I know a lot of people worry about leaving a lot of junk behind for their kids to have to go through, right? Um, Some people also allow their hoarding habit to affect them financially, right? It creates a financial dilemma. Uh, I've known people that sit at home and they order stuff off QVC. I don't know if that's still a thing, but now we have Amazon, right? So eventually you can, you can empty a bank account ordering things. You can literally go broke with your hoarding. So those can all be problems with hoarding. Uh, hoarding shows a side of human depravity that we kind of find fascinating and simultaneously relatable, right? It's our fascination with that depravity, that the human train wrecks of hoarders, that, that, that's what keeps people watching. It's just like Tiger King, right, or Mari Povich, right? Hoarders was a hit because we were simultaneously disgusted and fascinated by it. We all think of hoarding as a vice, and we recognize it as such when we see it in other people. Now, that all makes sense on a human level. But the scriptural reason for what makes hoarding stupid and, frankly, sinful much of the time is found in today's passage. Jesus looks at hoarding in terms of what we treasure. And he explains to us what we treasure matters and why, if we treasure the wrong things, we're going to suffer for it. Ultimately, Jesus says that it's not so much that we hoard, it's what we hoard. What we treasure says a lot about us, and it's an indicator of our spiritual health. Now, how do we define what treasure is, though? They say one man's trash is another man's treasure. That's certainly true in my experience. Some people collect the weirdest things, like creepy dolls, for instance, you know. That's even worse than trash. It's probably sinful. But I I found a delightful little detail here in the Greek. Uh, The Greek word for treasure in this passage is thesaurus. So you can see the irony of me looking for a synonym for treasure as I was preparing this message. But the definition of treasure is literally to store something up. In fact, the Greek text of verse 19 says quite literally, don't thesauritize your thesaurus on earth. Don't treasure your treasures up on earth. In other words, a treasure is a collection of something. Something you have stored against a rainy day, right? It literally means hoarding something. Gathering something up that has value, either intrinsic value or sentimental value or perceived value. It doesn't really matter if the value is real. What matters is that you've collected it up. You've invested in it, if you like. And I would say that when you think of it that way, it's good to maybe think of treasure as it's where we find our security, 
in a lot of ways. A rainy day fund, something you can depend on, something you're not going to run out of because now I have enough of it. The kind of thing where you can lay on your pillow at night and it's been a really hard day and a lot of things have gone wrong, but you say to yourself, at least I have X. That's your treasure. And for many people, this will mean money in one form or another. Even the junk that I hoard, all my baseball cards, are right. it's because I, the idea is one day they might be worth money, right? That's why I'm holding them. Never going to sell them, but they might be worth money. And there's a great irony when you think about that in the fact that we in America print in God we trust on our coins, right? It's right there on our currency. I wish it were true. Now, I don't think it means that all collecting of anything is sinful. My son Jacob collects can tabs. I don't know why. Grace used to collect bottle caps. Not even just like nice ones, just any bottle cap. I used to ask her if she thought they would become currency in some dystopian future. (laughs) Jacob might be onto something with the aluminum. I kind of feel like if inflation keeps up, they might become more valuable than the coins. So maybe they're smarter than all of us. I don't know. But we tend to assume that things that last have value, right? Uh, Diamonds are forever, according to the James Bond movie, right? Gold doesn't degrade, it doesn't oxidize, so it's considered a precious metal, right? But even gold only has value because, by common consent, we have generally agreed as humanity that it is both beautiful and hard to come by, and therefore it has lasting value. That's kind of an assigned value, right? Not a real value. Gold is worth something only because everyone agrees that it is worth something. So it's kind of circular, And if alchemists ever did find a way to manufacture it, it would be worthless. So if we're going to hoard something, we want it to be something worth hoarding. And Jesus argues that anything we hoard on earth is at best pointless and at worst destructive. And again, he makes three arguments to this effect in three little sections here. The first being the argument that none of this is going to last. He says, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. Now we know this is true from experience, right? How many of you have saved something for a rainy day only to find that it was ruined in the storage, right? Moths ruin things, that's true, particularly fabrics. Georgia knows all about it. Um, I still remember the smell of the mothballs in the closet in my parents' house growing up. I thought they smelled and looked kind of like candy when I was five. Mom would yell at us for playing with them. That's the price you pay to keep the moths away. Um, But even if you avoid the moths, clothing doesn't last, right? It doesn't just keep going forever. Hand-me-downs have a lifespan, you know? Uh, Georgia inherited a a baptismal gown from somebody in her family. It's been in the family for over a century, and we couldn't use it because even without it being moth-eaten, it was very well preserved, uh, but it was so brittle. So even when the moth didn't get it, what good was it? It was like a nerve-wracking heirloom that we were afraid of ruining, so eventually we just gave it back to her parents. Like, we couldn't handle the pressure of owning this thing. Rust and other rot gets to almost everything else, right? 
I have old model trains, as I mentioned in my list of things that I won't let Georgia touch. Um, but they've gotten so rusty in the basement that they're all but unusable. The model I have is my dad's from the year he was born. It's a Lionel set. It barely runs, and when it does, it throws sparks, which is kind of exciting. <laughs> Needless to say, this is not ideal under the Christmas tree. Um, I have important paperwork and taxes and records and filing cabinets, and we have some here at the church. And, uh, you know, well, we have humidity where it gets stored, right? And you end up with rust marks from the staples and the paper clips, and the paper eventually rots and discolors, and bugs, they eat the glue in old books, and the binding falls apart. And if CDs, you might have collected CDs when they were still a thing, right? And they get glitchy. And then maybe you have old records. Well, the records get scratched, right? And tapes get eaten in your machine. And none of this stuff lasts forever. Hoarding food, boy, that doesn't usually pay off, does it? Everything gets moldy and stale and mushy if you let it sit long enough. I, look, I spent 20 years in food service before I came here. It is amazing how many colors of mold exist in this world. <laughs> But even safe things like dry goods can let you down. I used to think that the expiration dates on chips and pretzels were just a suggestion. I was wrong. There is nothing so gross or disappointing as chips or trail mix that has gone bad. And beyond that, things get stolen too. In our last house, we got broken into no less than three times, and each and every time we were at home, and the second two occasions, the dog slept through the break-in. <laughs> Not the brightest animal. When I was a kid, we got broken into once at night while everyone was home. A guy broke into the house and stole, of all things, our VCR. Back in my day, this was a significant loss. Children will not understand. But that's the risk you take when you hoard things because you can't keep track of all the things that you're hoarding and you can't take care of it all. And thieves actually prefer to take neglected items that won't be missed right away because you have so much of it. Georgia used to try hoarding her Halloween candy as a kid, and I, I think the goal was maybe she was going to make it last till next Halloween. I don't know what she was thinking, but what happened? Her dad stole it and ate it when she wasn't looking, right? And that's what I would do. I would do. I do do that, yeah. Last night, I bought a platter of food down at the, the Blues Festival downtown, and I'm like, I'm going to take this home. I'm hoarding this, this plate of, of mac and cheese with jerk chicken on top of it, and it was so good. I ate one little piece, and I took I'm going I'm to save this for later because I'm already full. And I put it down there, and what happens? The dog eats it. <laughs> and I could have killed him. I thought about it. But the point is, is that our hordes are not safe investments. Even if we were to liquidate all of our assets into cash, it breaks down. That's what inflation is doing right now. It is elementary economics to understand that the dollar has no intrinsic value. That's why we used to peg it to uh, gold and silver. Some of you still have old silver and gold certificates. Not that they're usable anymore, but now they're just old paper. They're kind of cool. But money only represents value. It has no value in itself. You can't eat it and inflation decreases its hypothetical value daily, right? Gold has historically been more stable, but that's no guarantee. Even gold can lose its luster. It could drop in value. And let's be honest, if the zombies took over, it would be useless. You can't eat gold. You certainly can't eat Bitcoin. 
So yes, bugs eat. Rust corrodes. Thieves break in and steal. Inflation and taxes take care of the rest. Nothing lasts forever in this world. Jesus is stating a fact so obvious that it barely needs saying. You would think. And yet it does need saying because we are all tempted to invest in this world, aren't we? In spite of all evidence to the contrary, we invest in something that we know darn well cannot last. We put a lot of stock in a sinking ship. It's like buying stock in steamboats or eight-track tapes. And we do this because the earth, for all its foibles, it's at least something that we can see, whereas heaven is invisible. So we invest in what we think we know, even though we know it doesn't make sense. Everyone knows you can't take it with you, but most of us live like maybe we'll be the exception. So Jesus talks about this a good bit, not just here. He, he tells a story in Luke chapter 12. He tells a parable about a man who is planning to build bigger barns to store all of his grain so that he can be fat and happy for many, many years to come. And God says, you're a fool. I'm going to take your life tonight. A lot of good that's going to do you. In other words, even if we avoid the moth and the rust and the mold and the dogs and the thieves, you're going to lose it anyway because even if it lasts, you aren't going to last. And at the very best, your kids will end up spending your money on vacations, a better car, a new couch, and paying down some debt. Some security. So Jesus says that instead of investing here, we should invest in heaven. He literally tells us to hoard things up there because heaven is not the risky investment that earth is. Now, he doesn't openly state here how to do this, uh, but we know from the context and from other passages what he means. First of all, we have to read this in light of the last several sections we've been talking about because Jesus told us that generous giving and, and prayer and fasting were all part of the Christian life, and he has told us not to do it for human eyes the way the Pharisees do, uh, because he says they already have their reward. Well, that implies that if we do those things without advertising, if we do it right, then we are investing and hoarding our treasures in heaven. We still have that reward. This is also evident in the parable of the talents that he tells later in the book in Matthew 25. Jesus uses sort of similar sort of language of investment. In that parable, we're told that the good and faithful servant invests in the kingdom of heaven by spreading the gospel, whereas the wicked servant hides his talents. He buries them. So investing in heaven, hoarding heavenly treasure, looks a lot like generosity in Jesus' name to kingdom goals, praying that the Father's heavenly kingdom would advance on the earth and fasting because we're so excited about the kingdom that earthly food almost loses interest for us. And furthermore, we build treasure in heaven. We invest in heaven by evangelizing lost souls because the souls of born-again saints are something that does not lose value in the economy of the kingdom. For every soul that bows the knee to Christ, Scripture tells us that the angels rejoice in heaven because for that person, the kingdom has indeed come. That's not something that gets lost. In short, we hoard treasures in heaven by having a singular focus on the heavenly kingdom. The kingdom of heaven must be the number one goal and priority of the church in this world. 
Now, that doesn't win us many friends in the here and now, because once again, we're not expecting total victory before Christ's return. And when you're investing in in the kingdom, people look at that and just say that's foolish, and it seems like you don't have a a mind. You're you're too heavenly-minded to be of earthly good. Cool in the gang. Every good illustration starts with a phrase like that. Cool in the gang had a ridiculous track on their uh, wild and peaceful album called Heaven at Once. I don't know if you guys like old uh, hippie music here, but this is, it's actually quite comical. It's, it's really bad, a lot of trippy 70s nonsense, and it's also a lot of bad theology with Cool talking to some kid about how we can create heaven at once by bringing peace through music and, you know, trusting the younger generation and listening and, like, you know, blah, blah, blah. Heaven ain't going to come that way, not at once or over time. Contrary to that, what we have been learning is that the kingdom has come, and the kingdom will come, but it is also in the process of coming in the present through the steady, faithful work of the Holy Spirit through the church. Jesus chooses to build his kingdom through us, and we participate in that work. And as we do so, Jesus says we're investing in heaven. We're literally storing our treasure in the unseen kingdom. Now he gives two further illustrations to make this point, and the second one goes like this. He says, the eye is the lamp of the body, so if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? I'm going to be honest, at first glance, this looks like a really random illustration. Uh, But it's not. Uh, Jesus is speaking about what we're focused on. If you live for the kingdom, you will lay up treasures there, but you can't live, live for something unless you're actually focused on it. And that's why Jesus brings us this illustration of the eye. He says, if your eye is healthy, it will see clearly. It serves as a lamp, something that will guide you and keep you from falling on your face. But if your eye is unhealthy or bad, as he puts it, then it cannot receive light and you'll be walking in the dark and it's hard to invest in the kingdom if you're not looking at it. Now, we've said that the kingdom is in many respects invisible. Uh, Not that we can't see evidence of it, but we can't see it clearly, right? Like Paul says in 1 Corinthians, you know, we see in a mirror dimly, but one day we'll see face to face. The kingdom is in many respects hidden from our sight, so at least until we get to see Jesus in in, in eternity. But how can Jesus expect us to see the invisible kingdom now? How can we be filled with this light he's talking about? Well, he obviously means a form of spiritual sight, and I think it's helpful, actually, that the literal Greek phrase that he uses here, he says, if your eye is one, uh, which... Just Greek idiomatically, meaning is it's all in one piece, i.e. healthy, right? But I wonder if we could apply that logic to the unhealthy eye, that if a healthy eye is one, maybe the unhealthy eye is the kind of eye that sees double. Maybe it can't focus because the eyes are looking in separate directions. The bad eye is not just bad as in blind, it's actually seeing darkness. Almost like, there's a way he words it here, it's almost like it's mistaking the darkness for light because it's looking in the wrong direction. It's blind, but it's in denial about it. It doesn't know how blind it is. 
George and I were reflecting about this this week because we were struggling, I think, to focus on kingdom priorities because it seemed like we were under constant assault over our earthly priorities. Georgia told a friend that me preaching through this series felt like playing Jumanji, like every week we get attacked by whatever we just read about. Um, That's not always true, but it kind of felt like that this week. Um, My earthly treasures, such as they are, took a few hits this week. I'm not going to go into details about it, but I was very much distracted and distraught for several days this week, and um, it was hard on those days to care very much about the kingdom because my earthly hoard was at risk and that required my attention. The treasures I can see were clearly under threat and the unseen treasures didn't seem real enough to my eyes. It's kind of like that scene in It's a Wonderful Life when Clarence, the guardian angel, says he has no money uh, because they don't use that in heaven and George Bailey says, well, it comes in pretty handy down here, bub. I felt like George this week. My eye was at best of divided opinion. I was not one. It was not healthy. I was looking away from the heavenly kingdom and everything seemed like darkness. That's not how spiritual eyes are supposed to work. Jesus is saying that a healthy eye looks heavenward to an eternal reward and treasure and will not get bogged down in the darkness watching all the moths and all the rusts and all the thieves destroy our earthly treasures. I needed healthier eyes this week. And God, I think, has been faithfully making them whole again. You can't look at darkness and at light. You can't focus on heavenly treasure if you're too busy protecting your earthly investments. You need spiritual eyes that are full of his glorious light. And finally, Jesus uses this illustration about two masters. In verse 24, he says, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. You can see now how this kind of connects with the illustration of the eye. If an unhealthy eye can't stay focused on heaven because it's back and forth, right? An unhealthy servant can't figure out who he's serving because he's back and forth. And if you've ever worked a job where you had an unclear chain of command, this resonates with you. You can't be answerable to 12 people and still do your job well. If you even have two bosses, you're probably heading for trouble. Well, as Americans, we're used to thinking of ourselves as free and independent, but Jesus says we actually have two competing masters. As Christians, we're called to serve God, but we are tempted daily to serve money. In other words, to live for our tangible earthly possessions. Now, Jesus isn't saying that money is evil. He doesn't say that here. Jesus himself worked. Jesus earned money. Jesus paid taxes. He just told us earlier in the chapter that we should give generously. It's hard to give money away if you're not making any. So the scripture doesn't condemn money or working long hours, but there's a quote that's often attributed to Francis Bacon that I think echoes what Jesus is saying here, that money is a wonderful servant but a terrible master. Money is a tool. Money is a gift, something we're meant to use for the kingdom and for God's glory, but we so easily fall into the trap of making it our master. Now, we don't think of it that way, 
None of us think of money as our master, but the fact is that whatever we serve is our true master, at least in practice. And like so many sins, this one is so subtle because, yes, we're expected to work and to earn money, and most of us spend at least 40 hours a week doing so, and we should be doing that, but like every other idol, it starts in the heart. A good thing easily becomes toxic because we get our priorities in our minds and in our hearts out of sync. Earning money is not why God put you on the earth. You were not made primarily to earn a paycheck, contribute to society, get insurance, set up a 401k, and diversify your stock portfolio. You were made to serve Christ and his kingdom. You can do those other things, but they must not master you, nor should they master your time. You were not made to serve your money. Your money was given to you so that you could glorify God by paying your bills, blessing others, investing in the kingdom, and yes, even enjoying yourself because you're enjoying what he's given you. But you have to be careful because you will ultimately love and be devoted to the thing that you serve. And that's not just a danger for rich people. Poor people also can fall into the same trap. You don't need to have a lot of money to be mastered by it. So that's Jesus' lesson on hoarding. Again, it's not the hoarding that's the problem. It's what you hoard and also where you hoard it. And this will be a lifelong struggle, I think, for most of us. What we collect and focus on and work for and spend our lives serving is not always healthy. So what are you investing in? Where is your treasure? What's your guiding light? What are you actually serving? Again, Jesus isn't condemning bank accounts or preparing for the future financially. Life is full of good things he gave us to enjoy, but they are not to be our treasure. Our worldly possessions are not our reward. Even a happy retirement is not your reward. John Piper has a wonderful sermon. He has a famous illustration about collecting seashells and like, how is that really accomplishing anything for the king? You should go watch it. He's better than me on this point. But I actually think that the key verse that kind of ties this whole passage together is one that I skipped a little earlier, which is verse 21. It says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. I think this is the key because, first off, it summarizes everything he's been saying. The the ultimate questions in all of these illustrations are, what do you treasure and where is your heart? And Jesus is saying the questions will only have one answer. The verse actually diagnoses what's wrong with us, too, because our hearts go astray precisely because a lot of our treasure is not, in fact, stored in heaven. Instead, it's all around us, right? Right? It's stored in our education and in our jobs and in our various relationships, our houses, our cars, our reputations, everywhere but where it should be. But along with diagnosing the problem, Jesus is also proposing a cure. I've also found this verse interesting interesting because it's not worded the way I would word it. If I were Jesus, I would have reversed the order. I would have said that where your heart is, there your treasure will be. Because I tend to think that my treasure follows my heart. 
you know, I, I have things that I'm passionate about, and I therefore invest in those things. I love baseball, so I buy baseball cards and tickets and posters and this kind of thing, right? I love my yard, so I buy plants for the flower beds, and I buy mulch, and I buy bird seed, and I buy equipment, right? I love my wife, so I invest my time and my money in our relationship, right? And I tend to think that that's the way it works, that the love comes first and the money and the time and the energy will follow. But Jesus says, don't think of it that way. Where your treasure is, your heart will be. Your heart will follow your treasure. Maybe that sounds backward at first, but it actually makes sense when you think about it because we tend to value whatever we've already poured ourselves into. We get attached to our pet projects and ideas, not because they make sense, but because we've already invested so much in them, and we've taken ownership, and it's become part of our identity. It's who we are. It's partly, it can be a good thing. It's part of why we can't help loving our kids, right? We've spent so much of our lives investing in them, so how can we not be attached? It's why we keep spending money on a money pit of an old house, or why we just keep repairing the old car again and again and again. Or keep loaning money to an irresponsible child. We throw good money after bad because our heart follows our treasure. We just can't walk away from what we've invested in. And the more we invest in anything, the more our heart goes into it too. This is really how a lot of addictions start. But what that means is that how we handle our treasure has a vital impact on our hearts because the two things inevitably get tangled. They end up together. And the way Jesus words this has a practical application, I think, because in practice it means that we don't have to work on getting our hearts right first. He says if we start investing our treasures in heaven, our hearts will fall in line. If you don't really feel like your heart is set on the heavenly kingdom and on heavenly things, Jesus says, start stockpiling your treasure there anyway, and your heart will catch up. I find that encouraging, actually, because I can't always get my heart in order. Most of us can't. A lot of the times I would say, my heart ain't in it. Maybe my heart ain't in it. Maybe yours isn't. Who cares? You can still make active decisions to start putting treasure in heaven. I can give to kingdom work even if I don't feel like it. I can pray that the kingdom would come even if it doesn't actually excite me. I can fast for kingdom growth even though I don't enjoy doing so. And I can share the gospel even if I'm not sure how to do it right. And the more I invest in the kingdom of heaven, the more my heart will be there too because I've already poured my treasure into it. So in the end, the more we stockpile our treasure in heaven, the easier it will be for us to pray that the kingdom of heaven would come because the sooner it gets here, the sooner the promised reward becomes a reality. Now, like so many of these lessons, as we draw here towards the end, maybe you're feeling inadequate. Maybe you're thinking kind of like me, you know, boy, I've invested pretty poorly then. My heavenly hoard... uh, must be pretty small. I would think that the entire hall would probably fit in a one-car garage up there, Um, maybe a shed even, something. I've been so busy keeping up with the Joneses on earth, I'll never be able to keep up with the Joneses in heaven now. But as I've said many times, despair is not the point. 
there's good news because the gospel is still true after all, and the smallest amount of treasure in heaven will be more than enough. It'll be adequate. But you can be even more encouraged than that. Jesus doesn't clarify in this passage what the heavenly treasure exactly is or what it will look like, not right here, but we thankfully have other passages to shed light on that question. What treasure are we looking forward to? Well, Scripture has one primary answer to that question. In the Old Testament, God promised Abraham that he was his great reward. And in the New Testament, Christ himself is described as our treasure. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 4, he says, What we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ is Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. Paul also says in Colossians 2, he talks about how the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden in Christ. And we know that Christ, by his spirit, is hidden in you. In other words, everything belongs to Jesus. The treasure is all his, and he is ours. He chooses to dwell in us, in jars of clay. If you like, you could say that he invested in dirt so that we could own stock in heaven. The gospel is our treasure. Jesus is our treasure. And Paul says we have this treasure already. And one day... We will have it fully when we see him face to face, and our reward will be complete. The point is that no Christian believer will feel cheated in the kingdom of heaven. Because our primary heavenly treasure is Jesus himself, and he is the reward of every believer. Ever since the ascension, your true treasure has been in heaven, regardless of your track record. So be a holy hoarder. That sounds stupid, but you'll maybe remember it if I put it that way. And the more you invest in Jesus and in his kingdom, the greater that treasure will seem to you, and the more you will rejoice in his coming. Because where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Let's pray. Gracious God and Father, we come before you... Lord, as earthly citizens of a very wealthy nation, Lord, that live with daily temptation to hoard things here on earth, hoarding is rewarded and encouraged by everything around us. We may judge the, the ones who collect the dolls and the boxes of this and that, but Lord, it's not really any different when we, we look at people who are hoarding their, their wealth and investing it and, and planning for a future that they're not going to live to see. And yet, Lord, that is encouraged, and we look at those people as responsible citizens. Lord, we know that not all of this is sinful in and of itself, but, Lord, we do have a very hard time keeping focused on the kingdom. So we pray that you would teach us. Teach us to invest in the kingdom, to invest in heaven. Help us to direct our treasure towards Christ and towards the kingdom. 
Lord, redirect our hearts towards the kingdom. Help us to do it this week and going forward. And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Please stand and join me in singing the doxology. Praise God from whom all blessings flow.